Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to a brand new edition of Freedom Books, Flowers and the Moon, the podcast brought to you each week by the Times Literary Supplement. My name is Stig Abel and I am the editor of the TLS. Thea is here. Thea. Hello. Do you want to clear up anything about holidays? Holidays. Oh, only to say that more often than not, when you say I am on holiday, <laughs> I am in fact not on holiday, yeah. but rather working from home, quietly, from, from home, home, very with, hard. With a dog. And I would, for example, never, never, ever consider, for example... Taking a day's holiday for my own birthday, which, which, doing, which, which I believe I'm doing that tomorrow. <laughs> I think it's quite nice. My, my wife would say in response to that is there is like a three and a half week Easter holiday, and I'm taking a day to do it. <laughs> so I, I lose on both ends of that argument. Uh, we do need to clear up uh, tuna melts as well. Well, there's nothing to clear up there. They are just they are just wrong. Tuna on pizza? Absolutely not. I think that's wrong. What do we ta- in Italy? Not. If you went for a pizza. What's the acceptable thing to have on it? I well, I mean, like, all, what, I mean, all sorts of loads of different. Oh, right, so Italian would look down on you if you had, you know, Hawaiian pizza. Yeah, they would on that definitely, absolutely, <laughs> and rightly so. Because what's pizza. wrong with you? I love Hawaiian. Have you ever had a Hawaiian pizza? No. You've never had it. No. But sweet, Why? Pi- sweet pineapple, salty ham. No? It's a completely different thing. No. Put it on a cocktail oh, what's your stick pi- or something. Yeah, I do like that. Well, there you go. Uh, what's your pizza of choice, Sue? I I am a purist. I'm a margarita. Oh, for yeah. No, why? I don't. It's so boring, isn't it? No. no. If the ingredients are good, then that's all you need. Okay. You about to say or something though? You about to say one more and then? Uh, no, really, just a margarita. Yeah. All right. Even if you say it in an Italian accent, it doesn't make it less boring. It's still just it's still just a pizza with nothing on it. Right. Anyway, make sure you're subscribing to the TLS so you can read our tech special this week, known internally as the Sex Robots issue. We, which is true, isn't it? We, we, we have been saying that. So refined. It is. It's incredibly fun. We have an extract from Ian McEwan's new novel, Machines Like Me, and Ian will be speaking to Toby Lishtig for this podcast next week. But this week... Yes, we'll talk about sex robots and how optimistic we should be about their rise. Is it a cure for loneliness or simply a masturbation receptacle for creeps? I have to say that that was my own contrast, not that of Alice Block, who's in the studio to explain more. Keeping matters sociological, we'll explore the youth justice system with Seanine Lamb. Why is the UK so bad at it and maybe even worse than the US? She'll tell us, and our very own George Berridge has been reading up on Max Porter. He likes booze and Moby Dick. George, that is, but we'll find out what he makes of Porter's second book, Lanny, and the theatrical adaptation of his first. What does a good youth justice system look like? In a wide-ranging piece in this week's paper, Seanine Lamb ponders precisely this question, providing an overview of the youth justice system in England and Wales and comparing it to America's. Recent developments seem to be taking the two systems in opposite directions. While in England we're doubling down on the tough tactics that bring more and more young people into the criminal system, the US, famously tough on crime, with the mass incarceration rates to prove it, appears ever so tentatively to be taking a more enlightened approach – drawing on brain science and a more sympathetic understanding of social factors including poverty. 
Shonin takes in two recent books in the field, Why Children Follow Rules by Tom R. Tyler and Rick Trinkner, and Miller's Children, Why Giving Teenage Killers a Second Chance Matters for All of Us by James Garbarino. Not to mention introducing me, at least, to a new term, ephibophobia, fear of the teenager, which has a great deal to do... (laughs) Is is that a great phrase? It is. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful word. Here to tell us more is Shawneen Lamb. Hello, Shawneen. Hi, Do you like the word ephibophobia? I think it's a great word. It's a, yeah. <laughs> it's a fantastic I'm not sure word. I can break down its etymology. <laughs> <laughs> we won't ask you to, we won't ask you to. Instead, and I don't know whether this is any easier, um, if you could start by giving us a brief sketch of the current state of the system in England and Wales, because it took me by surprise, I must say. Well, I suppose the thing that's really interesting in terms of the UK is where we're geographically located is also kind of similar to the justice system that we inhabit. So, um, although today as we speak we're a part of Europe Um, (laughs) our justice system very much um, looks like the American justice system and in lots of ways there's similarities obviously jury trials and things like that came about in the US from the British being there but um, where the US in the late 90s became what they had what they call their mass incarceration crisis the UK kind of tentatively followed and now it seems the US is rowing back from that yet we're continuing down uh, the path of criminalising children and young people and we're I mean specifically we're outliers in that the age of criminal responsibility in in England and Wales is 10 it's I mean it's incredibly low in in Italy it's 15 in Germany it's 14 yeah the average in Europe is 14 it's incredibly low and there's uh, no public appetite really for for raising that but what it means is that you can have a child as young as 10 going through a jury trial and what is there uh, is has anyone ever done scientific or psychological any form of testing to work out what actually an appropriate age of responsibility is or is it just kind of custom and practice well it's a really interesting question because uh people talk about this in light of lowering the age of the voting age to 16 and when can you actually participate in civic society so we have a fixed age of majority in this country of 18 which is when you're an adult but then varying ages below that so for example driving or smoking cigarettes or having sex Um, but all of those are much higher than 10 and so we're saying for example that that young people are unable to make a rational decision as to whether or not to have sex with someone until they're 16 yet they can engage in a whole criminal process from the age of 10. And is that a historical thing that we've wanted to, to keep it low because people ultimately can't get into their heads that a crime doesn't have a conscious act behind it and we need to have a conscious act in some way. Yeah, I think it's around that idea that that people know what they're doing is wrong, that children know what they're doing is wrong, uh, which is, of course, often true. But but can they be held to account to the consequences and do they rationalise a whole process for doing that? The, the reason we set the age, say, of sexual consent at 16 is because we think it takes the maturity of a 16-year-old to understand the consequences of, of what might happen, even though people will be aware of what sex is from, from much younger. So it's it seems like a real anomaly. And also, Spain, I don't know what it is in Italy, but the age of consent in Spain, for example, is much lower. I think it's like it's it's 12 or 13. Yeah. And so it's, it's strange that we would go in the opposite direction for this. It's, it's from a historical perspective where we, criminali- we used to criminalise children from the age of eight. Um, and it's increasingly Scotland are about to raise the age of criminal responsibility and Ireland have. But here it stubbornly sits at 10. And does there seem, you say there seems to be no appetite to change that? No, the, the, there's no political appetite to change it whatsoever. Uh, I think the belief is that there are very few children that enter into the court system. But there are, and this is the part that I th- find very difficult. A lot of children who come into the police station, so they may not end up getting charged or going to court. But the whole experience of being in a police station is extremely traumatic um, for a child. And so instead, we're seeing a continuation in in, in, in England and Wales, at least, um, of this kind of this tough on crime thing. So and a lot of that we owe to, to New Labour, don't we? Yeah, it has to be said that that, that it did peak um, around 2010, the number of entrants into the youth justice system. So right at the end of New Labour, when I think it was about 160,000. And that has gone down now to 60,000. But the problem we're seeing is it's still 
people with very complex mental health needs now that are entering or they're still being caught up in the police system and then being diverted out and not going to court. But ultimately we are in this area a right-wing country and what Tony Mm. Blair recognised. So remember Jamie Bolger happened just before Blair, Mm. I think, and John Major said we should be less understanding, we should be less forgiving about the causes of crime and Blair agreed with him. Because they were were trying to compete on that point. I, I read a story that... At the same time as Jamie Bolger happened, in Norway, two young boys mm-hmm. stripped a little girl, uh, I don't know, assaulted her and then left her and she died of hypothermia. So they killed her. And I think two weeks later, they were back in school and they were in a process, a sort of health-led process of rehabilitation. Whereas what happened to Jamie Bolger's uh, killers um, was very, very different. And, and mm-hmm. uh, that it seems to me a societal thing that we cannot sit, stand softness in the face of crime and we associate health or mental health or other approaches to to this problem as as a softness and i think that underpinning all of that has to be a belief that deterrence is a factor in crime because otherwise you wouldn't have such harsh uh penalties and when all the science and evidence shows that deterrence really isn't a factor when people are committing acts which are um, what they call in, in the, the research kind of hot acts that they're, they're not rational cold decision making acts that they are impulsive. In, yeah impulsive in the heat of the moment and and I think um, somehow it really shocks us as a nation when children do horrible you know really awful things and so we have therefore this idea of two types of young people the good civic young person and then these evil children or young people and and the the thing that I think is most fascinating about that is that there is no voice for their experience in that we only hear the voice of the adults in these um, debates not least because they're not named and in the case of the the Bolger killers their identities are protected for forever yeah so we're never going to find I mean we know that one of them one of them seems to have been rehabilitated one of them still commits awful acts but that's all we're allowed that's all we're allowed to know about it but if you looked even just today, I, I don't know if you saw in the news, there was uh, some violence within Feltham Young Offenders Institute yeah. in, in, over the, the last couple of days. And a, a very strong reports from the Prisoners Office Association. We stand by them. This is not tolerable, uh, which is all perfectly right. But no one's hearing the other side of why this violence erupted. Um, from the mouths of the people that that were involved. So they're in a totally voiceless element of society. And this gets at something that you you put very well in your piece, which is the the different spheres, the different the competing rule yeah. systems and how you can't really reconcile them. Can you can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, I think this is the thing that really fascinates me um, as someone who works within the youth justice system and I think resonates with everybody because they have been a teenager. Um, and it's whose rules do you abide by um, when you are making decisions? So uh, what's interesting in the Tyler and Trinkner book is they talk about this idea of a three kind of legitimate systems, the school system that has its own rules, your family system that may have different rules uh, and have some morality to them, um, and the legal system. By that, they mean contact with the police and more formal systems. But what's I felt not explored, because it's often the most dominant thing for teenagers, is the peer system. And what really happens, if we remember ourselves being um, teenagers and children, how we were perceived by our peers was so much more important than uh, whether the teacher thought we'd put in a good piece of work, uh, whether our parents thought we were well-behaved and nice. um, And the systems that we've created fail to acknowledge the preeminence of this peer system in those years. And they presumably fail to distinguish between a certain amount of necessary rule testing, Mm -hmm. which is a process of growing up, Mm -hmm. versus rule breaking, which is felt to be criminal. And when you have ASBO systems or systems like that, you draw you don't really draw much of a distinction between the two. Someone acts in a stupid teenage Mm -hmm. way, they're automatically a criminal. Mm And that might push them into a world where where the rules are being broken more regularly rather than actually taking them from that. And I think that's, again, that point that I made earlier about the young people's voice not being present in any of this. Um, A stark example that I put in the piece was around this idea um, 
of uh, snitches getting stitches. This idea that ch- that young people have that they snitching on a peer group is a real violation of the code of conduct. Um, yet the court system expects you to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth. And um, if you don't, you will feel the weight of the criminal justice system. So these two competing spheres are in conflict and no one's recognising the reason why people may not be abiding by the rules is they're abiding by a different set of rules. And in, until I think we bring the voice of children and young people into those other systems, we're always going to have them clashing with each other. We get some of that in James Garbarino's book, although mm-hmm. the, the people he speaks to are no longer children. They were incarcerated when they were children yeah. for crimes committed then. What's his project there? What's he sort of hoping to achieve? So, uh, I mean, he's got an extraordinary insight into people who killed as children. So the fo- the reason why the book's called Miller's Children is a case called Miller versus Alabama that went to the US Supreme Court, where the court decided in a five to four ruling um, that children couldn't get mandatory life without parole sentences for killing, which they had been able to get prior to this. It was 2012, uh, the decision in Miller. Um, And then subsequently there was a case after that called um, Montgomery versus Louisiana that said everybody who'd been given a life without parole sentence as a child could have a resentencing hearing to see if it was still appropriate. And James Garabino acts as a psychologist in those cases, going in... um, to tell the court whether the person who was given a life without parole sentence um, is rehabilitated enough to re-enter into society. Um, some of those men and young women, and, and a lot of the lawyers I know in the States who work on these cases, have been in adult prisons since they were children for over 20 or 30 years. One of the cases that Garabino studies, the guys spent longer um, in prison than he ever spent out in the outside world. And how world. can they possibly be rehabilitated in that circumstance? Because if you take a child and put them in a... I mean, American correctional facilities yeah. aren't necessarily places of great rehabilitation often. I suppose the, what they mean in that context is, are they safe to be reintegrated into society? And are they? Well, of course, uh, uh, many of them are. Um, in my experience of working with people on death row and serving life sentences in the States, you know, there are really lots of people who are running civic the prisons are being run a lot by the prisoners themselves these trustees are societies uh within the gates that are you know running efficiently and effectively by a lot of times the prisoners themselves now of course and and garabino points that out there are some people for whom rehabilitation may be impossible perhaps there's mental health problems or serious violence but he i think in general he says and and that's borne out by the the scientific evidence that children grow out of their bad behavior and this has been the most one of the authors calls it an explosion of technology that has changed the way that certainly in america perhaps more than here so far things are being done so what's really interesting is that um Bell obviously identified this in 1904, this age crime curve, which he showed that um, drop-off happened around Stanley about... Hall. Stanley Hall, sorry. Yeah. It's a bell curve. Yeah. It's a bell curve. Is that where the word bell curve comes yeah. from? Yeah. Uh, so when does the drop-off happen, sorry? Around about 25. Really? And, and that was perceived to be, you know, hormonal and settling down. What's been fascinating in the last 20 years is the... Uh, evolution of MRI and fMRI which is the film moving image of MRI which shows which part of the brain children and adolescents use when they're making decisions so it's not saying they can't make decisions what it shows is that they use a different part of their brain when they're making decisions and um, one of the things that's really interesting is around and and none of the ages are obviously um, they're, they they vary yeah. depending on adolescent development but there's a period of time where the frontal cortex which is where we make rational decisions is entirely pruned back like a like a rose bush ready for the kind of rewiring so i suppose the idea is that beforehand children have this generalist absorbing knowledge that they learn about the world around them and then they're going to get specific and it ties in with the idea of people choosing GCSEs or A-levels. Their knowledge goes down one direction, but exactly like a rosebush. Now, the science is here in the UK. Uh, there's Professor Sarah-Jane Blakemore does a lot of work around this. What we haven't seen is the criminal justice system accepting this science as valid. And, it, and ultimately, the criminal justice system is a political entity 
not an evidence-based entity because it has to serve political masters who don't want to seem soft on crime. So the chances of that shifting is presumably relatively poor. Surely that's the same in America, though. Yeah, the, I think the, what the happened true. in America is, um, in these series of judgments, is that the, people like the American Medical Association, the American Psychiatric Association, submitted amicus briefs, so from their scientific basis, saying, we're not taking either side... We are independently showing you the science uh, from our scientific knowledge. And the court accepted that because when you look at the facts of any of these cases, they're all pretty horrific yeah. and by the very nature they are. But um, the science kind of speaks for itself. And I, I think there's a real opportunity here in the UK for uh, the judiciary and the politicians to recognise this kind of adolescent brain development as really game changing. Shanine Lamb, thank you very much. We're going to have to leave it there. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Kate Devlin's new book is called Turned On, Science, Sex and Robots and is, according to Alice Block, an upbeat work of tempered optimism from someone who declares herself to be a pro-sex feminist with some radical leanings. The books offer a history of the human desire to get intimate with the inanimate, from ancient dildos to sex toys initiated remotely. Devlin's own preferred sex toy of the future will be changeable at whim, apparently. Perhaps one day a bed of breasts, another day a series of vibrating and moving penises that talk dirty to me. Maybe sometimes both. Which is quite an image if you pause, and maybe you don't want to pause to reflect on it, but it is quite an image. There you go. So are sex robots harbingers of liberation or dystopia? Alice Block is here with us. Alice, hello. Hello. Uh, We'll get to the changeable at whim sex robot at Mm -hmm. some point, no doubt. Um, Is there a thesis of this book is there an argument well I mean for me there is Um, I think you know she ends on this point that really kind of another sex robot future is possible it's not predetermined it's not pre-programmed and for me that's kind of the overall thesis I suppose so what's the stand what's the standard sex robot for just a load of creeps masturbating in a complicated fashion yeah I guess there's a lot of moral panic around the subject Um, there's a lot of ideas about kind of who might own these things um, kind of the disaster that they might kind of wreak upon sort of human relationships and interactions and that kind of thing I guess that's the kind of everyday almost kind of tabloid-esque thesis it might have been my thesis I guess before reading this book it and may I still guess, be mine, actually, until, until the yeah, end of this Yeah, I mean, it's funny, sometimes in reviewing a book, you almost, you surprise yourself that actually kind of, your opinion isn't necessarily what you think it is. Which is good in a way, is. isn't it? That's a sign yeah. of a good book, potentially. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so her thesis to me is that kind of the future of sex robots and sex technology is not necessarily disastrous. It could kind of bring people together. It could create a kind of a better future of intimacy, a more inclusive kind of intimate world. 
uh, etc. How, 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 how is that? What, how? <laughs> well, I guess... <laughs> Sorry, <Ted. laughs> No, I guess, um, so taking a step back, I guess if we think of... Um, sex robots as um, these kind of pornified, hypersexualized gynoids, these fembots that she, she talks about in the book. And, you know, I think for a lot of people that's um, kind of quite rightly unappealing. Um, I know that it is to me. Um, and she talks about how they're, you know, they're often kind of framed in what she calls, I think, the monoheteronormative uh, sort of gaze. You know, it's for straight people. It's often women, as in, you know, the, the robots are women, etc. Yeah. All of that stuff doesn't necessarily appeal to me, probably not to you guys. I don't know. But maybe, you know, if we can think differently about sex robots and sex technology and kind of take a leaf out of sort of the sex toy design book, at least this is how I understand what she's saying then maybe kind of we can have a more interesting kind of abstracted, multisensory, sinuous, interesting, multi-textured... Duvet of breasts. Hence all of that kind of... Lots of, um, yeah, vibrating penises and things like that that I've never had to write about before. It seems that, that, I mean, that that would have to be quite some change of direction in a sense, though, wouldn't it? Because... Even when you just think about the earliest robots, they even just they tend to have been designed to be assistants or to just, you know, mm. show what can be done. They're always women. It's always default women, isn't it? Even if you just think of the kind of the clunkiest things, they tend to be female form. I don't know. I mean, OK, so I'm, I'm no robot expert, although I slightly feel it having uh, <laughs> read this book for so long. Um, but I guess looking at, you know, pictures online of these kind of early humanoid ones, they're kind of genderless to me I suppose Mm. but then you get these um, I forget the male term but then you get the kind of the gynoid the the female one but I guess um, if you think of you know there are robots that perform all sorts of functions in I guess the military Mm. in um, kind of cleaning and and all that kind of thing swimming pool cleaners that kind of thing they don't they they serve a function but they don't need to look like people Mm. um, and they definitely don't need to look like sort of you know porn stars thank god they don't imagine that yeah imagine imagine if they did yeah yeah. but it's interesting (laughs) in our minds we all think of a a femme they are they are a very pornified thing aren't Mm. they they're massive boobs and sort of big vacant eyes and and, and that sort of thing is there a history of sex toys worth knowing because you might not know this Alice we had Elaine Showalter the famous feminist on our podcast and she did a piece do you remember this theory where she said Mm. in 1844 it was a critical year in sociology because vulcanised rubber was invented and that led to condoms and it also led to sex toys and actually in terms of sexual mores that was when the significant change happened that sort of mid-victorian period does 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 kate devlin talk about the history of, of sex toys Is she that a- does uh, that doesn't ring a bell that particular example that date and 1844 or whatever it's, it is it's stuck in my mind when the lane <laughs> show was it? I, think, <laughs> I think i wish yeah she does she does talk about the uh history of sex toys I suppose and I think I have this line in my review that you know we've been uh, intimate with the inanimate for a very long time um, she talks about the um, the kind of ancient story of I hope I say her name correctly uh, Lao Damia yep. um, who uh, kind of who her, her husband died at Troy and then she kind of created this blonde, bronze likeness of him and was later seen uh, interacting with it, so to speak. Is bronze likeness a euphemism? <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, I'm guessing. Um, I don't know whether it was a likeness of an, entirely him or yeah. just parts of him. Um, <laughs> but, but yeah, so, you know, it goes way, way, way back. Uh, she also talks about this, um, this kind of finding, I think, in a cave in Germany of um, this obviously kind of phallic uh, object that's you know could be over twenty five thousand years old. Um, all sorts of things. She she one thing I love and it's sad to hear that it might not be true is this rumor. She talks about how uh, there's a rumor that Cleopatra invented the vibrator um, and that it was I think a some kind of husk full of bees or something like this. Oh, I've heard. Uh, yeah. yeah. Well, there we go. That's Apparently, too, that's it's too not, good to check. Too isn't good it? to be Can't true. Be too good to check. Yeah, let's, yeah. let's not check yeah. that. Let's not, let's not think that too. too. Um, yeah. So I mean, the best I can say there is I think it, I think it goes way back and so that's yeah this is what I mean by kind of tempered techno optimism as well I think she's trying to say you know this isn't as frightening as all yeah this kind of what fresh hell is this well it's not it's not really a fresh fresh hell and it might not even be hell she she's very much pushing towards uh more abstract ways of of 
of taking this, more abstract directions. So yeah. the te- teleodildonics and... <laughs> teledildonics. That is a great word. That is a great word. Yeah, she has it in a little subheading, I think, a subchapter called uh, Teledil What Now or something, which is part of her sort of uh, witty style. But but yeah, I mean... And to be clear, that is enables sex toy users to feel sensations initiated remotely. And you say this brings new meaning to the long distance relationship. Yeah, I'm so, probably not the first to, to use that But this line. is the idea that you might be able to pleasure your partner remotely. Remotely, yeah. yes. Yeah, and you know, then we get to the whole question of smart sex toys and all of that. But um, on your question, I think, yes, she does say, hey, sex robots don't need to look like these kind of pornified fembots. You know, we might never make a sex robot that looks realistically human. So why, when we've got all this amazing technology around us now, are we still kind of trying to get there when we might never get there so I think yeah she does um, when you look at say the sex tech hackathons that she talks about and the workshops she's running she's really interested in the design element and doing something different she is also saying look even the human like ones yeah they're not great but we don't need to have a super panic about them you know in the same way that say sex doll um users they're not always who we who we think we are they're not who we stereotype them as i i mean i don't i don't know (laughs) it's not my it's not my scene um but yeah she does talk briefly in the book about how you know maybe they have been uh slightly not misrepresented but there's a narrow understanding of the kind of the internet shut in and and all of this but is there an argument that i wonder if there's a male female split here which which is that males historically are seen as requiring a certain amount of visual stimulation in a way that women are less that's i think there's an argument i've i've heard um so there's a kind of there's there's all sorts of ethical issues raised with this are the are these robots going to become a version of the male gaze because they'll be made predominantly by men predominantly for men so the image that will be created won't be something kind of abstract and and a series of sort of sensual levers Mm. it'll be someone who looks tottering with big boobs because that's far that has certainly been the case i mean yeah and and she would stress that we're really in early days here so i mean i think i can imagine it was a nightmare writing this book probably because as she's writing probably she's getting all sorts of alerts of new things changing and coming out but yeah we're i mean we're just at the beginning here but yeah for now definitely i think she would say the ones that are out there the kind of early experiments in the field or, or whatever i call them these proto sex bots um they are made in the male gaze and I think that's something that she would like to see expanded um, and, you know, made made more inclusive. Uh, there's, there's one yeah. fascinating yet awful ethical area that you raised, but I do think this is important to, to mention. She, mm. cause it almost seems to me that she explores this and then feels she has to say it's wrong, even whether the, I got the sense from how you were describing it, maybe she would like to explore this further, which is the idea of childlike sex robots, which she calls abhorrent... But she also says that they might have a therapeutic value for treating paedophiles. Now, we all understand the abhorrent side of, of that mm. argument because it's and there must be an argument that if, if a person has a has a, a sex with a robot, it might make them feel more likely to have sex with a person in real life. So it could break down a barrier that's being being kept up. Yeah. But equally, there is an argument about giving a safe place for people with certain inclinations so they're not harming actual people, I presume is the counter-argument to that. Yeah, yeah. And I I think um, my understanding is that she's not launching this debate or anything like that. I mean, this is part of a discussion where she's talking about the various uh, kind of ethical, legal issues raised by the subject. And yeah, this this is one of them. and I have to say, when I came across it in the book, it was all going quite, it was all going quite well until then. And I was thinking, this is quite a straightforward, you know, read. And then you see that, and you kind of get the heebie-jeebies because it's, yeah, your your instinctive reaction is like, oh God, you know. And she she rightly says, um, you know, she I think twice she says, yep, the idea is abhorrent. But yeah, she does also say, but there is a lack of evidence as to its therapeutic potential. Um, Yeah, I've got the quote here, particularly as an outlet or proxy for paedophiles in order to restrict offences to the virtual or robotic realm. I think she makes the point that that paedophiles aren't necessarily criminals. um, So this is kind of a condition in a way. Um, That's a very strong argument. There's there's arguments about can you treat it chemically, which happens in some countries. Can you treat it by therapy rather than by criminalisation? I mean, Mm. the the, the abhorrent point is so strong it seems impossible to get past that. Yeah, yeah. But it's and interesting that, that robots generally are going to become an ethical prism, really, aren't they? Because ultimately mm-hmm. all sorts of decisions that you that you can do when you create these robots about sentience and about relations and about 
mutuality and things like that they're going to become crystallized if you're creating someone that you want to make look like a human being it, it does feel like an area that's not just about sex it's going to be about all sorts of other areas yeah and sort of selectivity if you if you if you can make a choice it's almost like eugenics in, in, in a way you yeah. can choose exactly what you want yeah. rather than be confronted with the variety of the world and just see what happens yeah absolutely and there is that debate around you know whether they will kind of ruin human relationships because mm. why would you why would you you know go out with a, a married <laughs> sleep yeah. with a, a fallible human when you could kind of you know get your perfect sex robot that's exactly micro controllable program programmable whatever and is that, that you can take back to the shop you can't take your partner back to the shop do you get a sense that from reading this book that's a possibility that, that there is a sort of utopia or dystopia depending on how you look at it that where because sex dolls haven't changed people's relations no. to any. I mean, but they are. No. But maybe because they're just so crap. Well, I think I think she would argue that this fear that you know sex robots are going to ruin human relationships, you know, that's understandable. But actually, and and she kind of puts herself in dialogue with a, a colleague of hers that she agrees with um, in the book, and you know they both kind of seem to be saying, well, actually, it's it's a different category of relationship, a bit like the sex doll thing um you know and especially at this stage where as far as i can see they they are you know really not um close to being indistinguishable from humans i don't think we're yet at that stage where you know humans are replaceable by sex robots um but yeah you're right it absolutely does raise these sort of fears and concerns and she she does a good job of addressing them and the reason we've got this sort of tech issue is I think we're going to look more at it generally over time. Do you think we're just slowly waking up to... Because, you know, you say, oh, humans aren't replaceable, but I'm not sure you'd argue... You'd have thought social media would have got to the point it's got to or our relationship with where we give up so much of ourselves online. Mm. Ten years ago or five years ago, you'd have said, well, we're not going to, I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't put all, all that on my yeah, uh, online. And yet we've all kind of crept into it. So it's one of the lessons on all of this that things can move fairly quickly. I think I think so, yeah. But on that, you know, if you look at so social media, um, obviously, I mean, you could argue. I mean, I'm I'm no techie really, but that algorithms have their own power or whatever. After well, a while, do, you know. True. But actually, I think the message that I take away from this book, at least, is that the development of technology is really in in human hands, at least for now. You know, so it's not. It's especially while sex robots and robots aren't sentient. You know, we're yeah. we're still, relatively speaking in control and you know it's not up to the robots to develop their own ethical code for their own development it's up to it's up to us but we've not done that i mean one of the things that i'm, I'm struck by is that i remember going to a thing at google about this must have been four years ago and mm. we were talking about ai mm. and they said what do you think is the rule what are the rules about ai in the world do you think and here by the way here are the centers of ai around the world oh look there's one in north korea there's one in china there's one in russia what do you think the international laws are about AI? And there aren't any. And there still aren't any. Gosh. Because everything is kind of self-regulatory. There's kind of some principles of AI. There are principles that everyone should follow. But it's not a, it's not a kind of fixed law that's enforced by any agency because it will often cut across international boundaries anyway. So there's, I don't want to be pessimistic, but the, the fear, I suppose, is that lots of different people in different parts of the world are taking sentience and an AI forward can we really I mean I don't trust anyone to do anything it sounds like Kate Devlin sort of puts her finger on the Dr Frankenstein problem when she she looks at a real doll doesn't she and she finds herself torn between feeling you know oh my god this must not happen and also being completely amazed and impressed by how what humans can achieve mm, so the there's artistry. that push and exactly yeah. the artistry so there's the push and pull of the thing and that's where we're at now we've realized in all of technology how much we can do and then it's the question of, but do do we want to do that? Do we want to do that? Mm. How much should we? Exactly. Mm, mm. And, and what's the you know what's the real damage done if, if we do as well? I think yeah. she addresses that question quite level-headedly. Well, it sounds like a very interesting uh, book for the now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> thank Alice, you very thank, much. Yeah, thank you so much. That's so interesting. Thank you very much. Max Porter is both simultaneously lauded and oddly yet perhaps not well known enough. He's won Young Writer of the Year awards, the Dylan Thomas Prize, but he doesn't have his own Wikipedia page. 
His first novel, Grief is the Thing with Feathers, came out to much acclaim in 2015 and tells the story of a Ted Hughes scholar coming to terms with the death of his wife and the mother of his children. It's now been made into a play on at the Barbican, starring Killian Murphy. Meanwhile, his second novel is out, Lanny, a tale of rural England, a land of modernity and yet mythical gods and the disappearance of a young boy. George Berridge is a fan of both this week, calling the play a wild and dizzying microcosm of mourning. Very nice phrase. And the novel a dazzling ode to nature and the act of creation. He's here to make good those words of praise. George, hello. Hello. So let's start with Lanny, which I have read half of. You sound surprised with yourself. Well, I am a little. Uh, <laughs> but uh, so I'm really interested in what you've said. Uh, George, how's it built? How's it structured? How does it work, the book? So, well, like with his debut grief, this is a relatively slim novel set into yeah. three acts. Uh, and yet this time they are all kind of narratively distinct. Uh, the first introduces us to this small, quite quaint, but very, very English village on the kind of outside of the commuter. I mean, you're thinking of sort of oak trees and a cricket club and people who care a lot about whether their ale is real. Uh, <laughs> and we find here a, a family just moved there. We find uh, Jolie, the mother, who is a once actress and now a kind of gory crime writer. And we have a husband, Robert, who is a kind of banker of sorts who works in the city. And we have their child, uh, the titular character, Lanny. Uh, also, we have uh, an ageing kind of eccentric artist called uh, Pete or Mad Pete by those in the town with whom Lanny strikes up a friendship. And then we have uh, the presence of this sort of voyeur of the area who is called Dead Papa Toothwort. But he's not real, is he? Well, or is he? there is, uh, as with Crow from Max Porter's first book, there is a certain element of ambiguity here, which I think we're supposed to enjoy. Yeah. Uh, but he's kind of a mythical man of the woodsy, panny type creature. Yes, there is. Yeah, I was thinking, uh, as I was reading this the first time around, there is a certain distinct element of kind of things like Pan's Labyrinth or a monster cause, that he is this kind of geist. He kind of lives yeah. in the elements of the landscape and kind of watches as everything goes on. Well, and he's a, he, he doesn't just watch, though. He's a, he's a trickster figure. No, well, quite. He is this kind of mischief maker. and uh, Puckish. Puckish, yes. He's not... Uh, <laughs> He isn't a kind of malign, he isn't really malevolent, and yet he he is reluctant to see things remain kind of uh, stead and uninteresting. He kind of, he wants things to change and he wants things to happen. And so he manufactures what happens in the second and third act, and then he disappears from the narrative. And the story is constructed as a series of voices, isn't it? So it's, you get the mum's voice, the dad's voice. Yes, so in the, in, yeah. the, in the first, what we'll call act of the book, you have... Uh, the voices of the mother, the father, Mad Pete, and Dead Papa Toothwort. Uh, Lanny himself actually has no voice. And yet when we move into the second act, uh, little fragments start to appear. So names disappear, and you just take up voices from around the town. And it's only in the third act, when the kind of the narrative becomes more straight and free-faring, the form becomes more straight that things get really wild and phantasmagorical and sort of hallucinatory. So I quite like the, how he's played with that. You, you do love this book, don't you? I do. I think it's brilliant. Uh, Dead Papa Toothwort. This is what I found annoying, but this could be my <laughs> lack of um, heightened taste here. Dead Papa, Dead Papa Toothwort, when he talks, the words literally move and, and on the page they sort of they come off lines, there's sort of a poetical, very poetical yeah. feeling about them. And it sort of acts as a sort of poetical commentary to the action of the, the village itself. Yes, that's right. Uh, yes, very much in the same way. Uh, as I write in the piece, there is a clear kind of paying of respect here to uh, Dylan Thomas's radio play under Milkwood. And so Dead Papa Toothwort serves the same purpose as the main voice here. And so through him, we hear these kind of fragments of kind of conversations and uh, thoughts and gossip and dreams and we hear all of this kind of going on and I, we see these fragments of things happening on the pages they kind of they weave and they overlap and they wall and they kind of as you say kind of they cut off the edge of the page and through this and I don't think that this is any sort of postmodern kind of, I don't think it's postmodern I don't think it's tricksiness I don't think it's kind of uh smart kind of ergodic stuff this isn't kind of quite like something like let's say house of leaves uh and I think that this is all very much part of kind of... Max Porter, I think, is very clever about how he works with form and function. I think that this is all very deliberate. I mean, the book is, as I write it, is very heavily focused on things like creation and on 
playfulness and inventiveness and this is really important to both Lanny and the artist character Mad Pete and so I think that having this kind of freedom with form on the page I think is really crucial in kind of uh, developing that idea. It's a, a sense of kind book, of contained yeah. chaos. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a really good way of saying it. Is it significant, this book? Do you think this is going to be... See- I kind of get the feeling with him, he feels like quite a m- major figure in Genesis, Max Porter, is that fair? That you know, he's, he's now done two books, both of which are interesting and beautiful and well thought out and slight. And, you know, lo- that it feels like this is... He's becoming a thing. Yeah, I think that... I mean, I would hope so. I think that he is a writer of real, real brilliance and talent. And I think that what he does with Lanny so well is that there is none of this book that feels very uh, very obvious there is nothing here I mean there are themes that you can pick up on so and this is discussed via these kind of fragments of overheard conversation there's nothing very obvious about kind of Brexit or the state of the nation or environmentalism Thank none of this God. stuff is none of this stuff is discussed in a kind of very obvious way a kind of way that it could be uh, and I think this is really clever and I think this is interesting and Yes, I think you're right. I think that Max Potter is having somewhat of a kind of Midas moment. It's interesting that on the day of publication for Lanny, they announced the film has already been announced with Rachel Weiss starring as Lanny's mother. And he's already announced that he's working on a a third book. Wow. So if there are shares going Max Porter I would say now is the time to buy bye 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 I love that but so he I mean this Lanny does represent a significant step from grief is the thing yes I think so I think that this is much more plot there's a lot more going on a lot more there is and I think that this is a less is a less raw and it is slightly less I slightly hesitate to use the word focus but it is a slightly more developed work I think that grief was written as a kind of later life response to something that actually happened to Max mm. Porter. I mean, his father died when he was very young and it has a real cutting emotional edge grief, that is. Uh, and Lanny, I think, is a... Like Max Porter is now, it is a more mature work. It is There is more going on here. It reminded me a bit of... I don't know if you've read Reservoir 13, the John, John McGregor book. I have. I have started reading it as part of reading this since so many people have said, oh, you should read Reservoir yeah. 13. And it is a bit like that because the way he wrote that John McGregor is he wrote a series of stories about each character and then he cut them up physically and stuck them together and so it reads like a, a series of voices and you get a bit of a sense of that in this it's sort of a village set of yeah. voices you get okay. a community sense uh, and the idea of a slightly sort of rural mysticism is around there yeah well. and, De- and dead papa thought has this there is this lovely very brief quote that he says he calls it his in- english his english symphony yeah. he's listening to the kind of the sounds and voices of the town which i rather like oh, that's very good now um how do you turn poetic very beautiful, um, intricate novel writing into a play? Well, uh, I think that uh, Ender Walsh has done a really brilliant job and the play is on at the Barbican. It's having a relatively short run before moving on to New York and I think that he's done a really brilliant job of bringing this to life. I think that it is set basically on a pretty stark stage and yet with some really amazing lighting and projection work there is they build on this kind of the poetic the poetic elements of Porter so you see within the first act you see this kind of scrawling you see the Dickinson from which the book take its, takes its title kind of etched across the back and you see these words and interjections start to kind of uh, display on the back and I think that he does a really good job of uh, displaying the form of the book in its first instance and I think that He's done a really good job with Killian Murphy. I mean, they've worked together a number of times, and I think that he he is a really, really astounding performer in this. Because it sounds, at one level, again, to not make this tricksy when you have poetry being projected, and the the crow, presumably, who is a sort of figure in that, how does he become manifest in, on a play? Well, so yes, you're right. I mean, as with Toothor, there is a sort of ambiguity, especially in the book, as to how real Crow is. Is Crow a real physical manifestation who comes and visits or is he kind of a sign, a kind of interior madness of the father who's kind of become real in a sense? So how to put this on is a bit of a challenge yeah. uh, if you're Ender Walsh. You watch Killian Murphy, who plays the father, recently widowed and he kind of shuffles. He has this kind of old haggard dressing gown and he kind of shuffles and ambles around the stage. And yet when Crow appears, the the hood comes up and it covers most of his face and you see this kind of big thick grin appear from underneath it and he has a, there's a microphone concealed up his sleeve and suddenly this great thick booming voice appears and he becomes crow he comes all kind of his arms are flat back like wings and it's brilliant it's a really astounding performance it's very very physical there's a lot of leaping and bounding i mean i was really impressed i mean he 
clams and leaps straight up into the desk and onto the bunk beds, which was impressive. And I, uh, I yeah, that's respect all I want him for that. That's all I want in a play is someone Quite. is the athletic ability of all the actors. And I was, I was, I was, I was saying to a friend after I after I watched this. I don't remember if uh, if you've seen the the Lord of the Rings films. There's a yeah, moment in well, there's a moment in the first in the Thea's first not moment. Thea's nodding enthusiastically there. Uh, Noted. Where Gandalf in an attempt to uh, scare. Bilbo, who is hiding the ring from him. Yeah. Uh, there's a moment where they're in Bag End, this tiny little cottage, and he looms all of a sudden big. above. Yeah. He says, do you take me to this conjurer of cheap tricks? And he yeah. suddenly looms and he becomes massive. And then he shrinks back down again. He becomes, but I'm trying to be your friend. And it's, there's, a, there's a certain Shadow element of that to stuff. it. Mm. Yeah, quite. I'm trying to work out how popular Max Porter is. I mean, because getting a play, getting a Rachel Vice led movie going from a, a short run in dublin last year i think it dublin was to year. yep to this here at the barbican and then leapfrogging from that straight to, to new york to, to new york. what do we say i mean uh, are well. people are people yeah he a household I mean, yeah, name i mean what's his i don't I, think he's a household name yet i don't he should be i mean quite. i think he will be i would hope so i mean i think that he is a really interesting inventive writer and i think that what he is doing at the moment shows that there's a kind of real evolution in what he's doing I and mean, he said that he's writing a third book so i can't can't wait to see what he does with it yeah and is he sort of awardy is that the sort of is, it, is this going to be bookery do we feel oh, I, I think it, I'd, I'd be surprised if lanny wasn't in for a bunch of awards really I, i've just been talking about um sally rooney's book and it's amazing that, that wasn't nominated for normal a shortlist on, yeah normal people shortlist on the book i'm just i just wonder that there's a, is there a feel that this is another youngish person on the rise well booker do also seem to be making a concerted effort to be more wide-ranging in terms of what they cover so yeah I, I thought that was a coming sort of, in and this is much more playful in terms of what it is yeah i mean whether to, to start to speculate on the booker as a whole uh yeah. kettle of fish and yeah a whole sort of bag of worms and yeah uh, kettle of fish bag a kettle of worms kettle of worms <laughs> and uh but yes i think there was a slightly distinct choice by the booker not to include the extremely popular normal people on exactly. their shortlist and perhaps it'll be the same with lanny but i hope it's not i think it but this deserves all the success could it people who like genre fiction could people who aren't used to literary fiction if that word actually has any meaning, that phrase has any meaning, do you feel they could read this happily? Yeah, I don't think that there, I think that this is a, this isn't a, it's not a book that is trying to show off how clever it is. It is, a, it is just a clever book. Uh, but I think that it's both accessible and I think that anyone who, anyone who wasn't moved by this might have a, a particularly cold heart. Stig, were you moved by this? Yes, I was moved by it. <laughs> That's all for this week. Our thanks go to George Berridge, Alice Block and Seanean Lamb. Get a copy of our lovely tech paper printed anachronistically on dead trees or sent direct to your digital brain. Next week, Shakespeare. We don't talk about him very much, dear. I think you could look a little more enthusiastic about the greatest writer of the English language ever. I was just holding my breath for some reason. Oh, really? I just hadn't exhaled okay. it well. <laughs> uh, Shall we get Michael Caines in to of talk course. about it? The Doctor will be in the house. Until then, from Thea and from me, goodbye. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited edition skincare sets. Osea has been making clean, seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. Their Golden Glow body set includes three clinically proven bestsellers for smooth, glowing skin, while the Glow & Go facial set provides spa-level results at home. Both sets come in giftable boxes with savings up to $48 and free shipping for a limited time. For 10% off your first order site-wide, go to oseamalibu.com and use code MOM.